Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to find ourselves as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. So if you want to take out your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible and you want to borrow one off of us, grab one there in the seat pocket in front of you. In fact, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one, uh, congratulations, that's your Bible. Take that home with you. We actually get really excited when people steal our Bibles. So believe it or not, we want you to have one. So feel free to take that with you. But uh, Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And as we make our way to Matthew 11, what we've just come off of through these last several weeks is uh, Matthew chapter 10, which is the mission discourse. And so there Jesus called the disciples to him. He selected 12 that he would send out as apostles. You might remember this name apostle just means sent ones. And so he sent these 12 apostles out into the mission field. And then we have now spent four weeks going through one whole chapter, and now today we're going to cover an entire chapter in a Sunday. So about the time you thought we were going to never make it through Scripture, today, buckle your seatbelts up, we're going to make it through 30 verses, Lord willing, and do communion, and get out in time to watch a game. So there you go. We're going to make it through some Scripture today. Uh, I will also remind you that Matthew is topical in the way that he writes. So he is writing for a specific purpose. He's writing to show Jesus as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And so the stories he selects and the way he patterns them is to show that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting on for thousands of years. And so he's oftentimes a topical, except when he's not topical and then he's chronological. So in this story today, this is actually in chronological order. We know from uh, the Gospel account of Luke that Matthew 11 directly follows the time frame that we looked at in chapter 10. And so without further ado, if we're going to make it through the chapter, let's begin in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding the twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in the cities. And so Jesus, as I just explained in our intro, has sent out the apostles to go and preach and teach the gospel to all the lands all around. Jesus, you might recall, said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so he calls them and he sends them out. But notice with me what he does in verse 1. He's just sent them away, and what he goes and does is he uh, teaches and he preaches in their cities. And so I love this as we start off this morning that as Jesus calls them into the mission field, he's not just kicking his feet up, taking it easy, going to let them go out and do all the work. But in fact, like a good true servant leader, he is willing to go and get his hands dirty, as it were. So if any of you have ever had a really good boss, you might know that this is how they would act. They are servant leaders. They are willing to do the thing they have called you or asked you to go and do. And in fact, uh, if you've ever had a really bad boss, you know it's very much the opposite. They're not willing to do what they've asked you to go out and do. I also noticed in this that he went to teach and preach in their cities. And I think that's worth highlighting. He actually went to the hometowns of these guys that he sent off to other places. Now why, you might ask? Well, uh, I believe in, in large part it was to pave the way for them. For, for him to go before them, he was actually paving the way for their future ministries that they're going to have. And so if he calls you into something, understand this. He is always going to go before you. He is not looking to set you up for failure. He is, in fact, looking to set you up for success, to make straight the path, to smooth out the bumpy spots. He's going to go before you. So 
the question that might come to mind is that if he's going to set us up for success, what does success look like, right? That, that is often where we get the hang-up when we think of success. Is it the same way that he does? Now, success for him uh, looks a little something like this, um, like taking an entire group of your best friends through an area of the roughest part of Israel that they called Samaria. And doing all that so that you can meet one random woman at one random well on the outskirts of town at a time of day when nobody would go to a well to dip out water. So that's precisely what Jesus did for the Samaritan woman who was so ashamed of her past. She didn't want to be seen by anybody, but he said to his disciples, I must go to Samaria. That's because for Christ, success looks like life one-on-one. It looks like eternal life being secured for people one person at a time. And so we get it in our head that success must be thousands upon thousands of people, and that is wonderful if that happens. And yet, uh, Jesus shows very clearly in his life that success could look like just one person at a time. Now then, continuing on in verse 2, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and uh, and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another. Now, John, that's referred to here in verse 2, is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist at this point is uh, in prison there in the area of Judea, probably in a, a dungeon type setting. And apparently, his disciples can have uh, conversations with him. And so, as they go to try to minister to him while he's there in prison, uh, I'm, I'm sure, no doubt, they begin to share all the awesome things that Jesus is up to. And yet, here's John the Baptist, and he's in prison. And he begins to have doubts. He has questions because he is stuck there in this dark, dank, nasty prison cell. And so he asks, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Go ask Jesus this. And what I like about this passage of Scripture, the reason to break it out, it's it's because John had a season of doubt. Have you ever had a season of doubt? You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. And have you noticed when you're in that season of doubt, when you're wondering what is God up to, you hear all the awesome things that Jesus is doing all around you, but nothing is happening. Uh, Have you ever felt like you're in prison? That's precisely what John feels like. And I want to share that with you because um, this is John the stinking Baptist. Like, I inserted stinking. You don't find that anywhere in the Scripture. But this is John the Baptist, right? This this. Old Testament prophet that's dropped in the New Testament. I mean, this guy's a man of faith, and yet he has a season of doubt. That tells me that for you and I, when we have seasons of doubt come up, we probably need to understand that Jesus doesn't feel nearly as harshly towards us as we often feel towards ourselves. In fact, verse 4, we're going to see how he answered. In verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended of me. And so here's John, he's stuck in prison. In Matthew chapter 14, we find out the reason why he's in prison. It's because uh, he mentioned some things about Herod Antipas that made him uh, not so excited. So Herod the Great was the uh, ruler over all of Israel during the time of Jesus' birth. 
He was the man that ordered all the children there in Bethlehem, uh, two years and younger, to be killed. And so, not a great guy. Herod Antipas is his son. Now, Herod is just like a title. And so, Herod had several sons, uh, Herod Antipas being one of them. He was the ruler of the area of Judea, kind of southern Israel. He had a brother named Herod Philip, who was in Rome. And so, Herod Antipas goes to Rome to visit his brother. And while he's there, and they're having brotherly talks together, uh, he decides that Herod Philip's brother, or his wife, is, uh, well, she's kind of hot. And so he steals his brother's wife and takes her back to Israel and makes her his wife. Now, even today, in our day and age, where uh, morals seem to be falling by the wayside rapidly, we know that is not cool, right? And, and in their day, it was also not cool. This is not a way you're to act with your brother's wife. And so for John the Baptist, he was not a guy that was afraid. He was not one to back down. And so he made it very clear to everyone that this is not the way a leader should act. He, he vocalized this. And if you know anything about powerful people, what you know is um, they really, really don't like it when you call out their sin. And not only do they not like it, in this case, his wife didn't care for it either because it was her sin as well. And so Herod has John the Baptist thrown into prison for talking poorly of him. Now, in John chapter 3, verse 30, before John is thrown in, John the Baptist is thrown into prison, he says something very interesting concerning Jesus as the Messiah. In verse 30, he says this. uh, He says, He must, speaking of Jesus, increase, but I must decrease. Do you think as he's sitting there in prison, he thought that decreasing looked at all like this. And what I'm, I'm getting at is that John asks a very specific question in verse 3. He says, are you the coming one or should we look for another? The coming one is actually a messianic title. Back in Psalm uh, chapter 40, this is a word that was spoken about the Messiah who was to come. What John is basically saying is, are you going to come and make this thing right by me or not? Isaiah 61 is another famous spot we know of because Jesus actually preached in this spot. And if you want to turn there with me uh, to Isaiah 61, Jesus went in the synagogues and he preached and he taught. And in fact, in the Jewish synagogues, what they would do is they would teach verse by verse. That's kind of interesting, right? That's similar to what we do. They would read all the way through scriptures, and whichever rabbi was up to teach that day, they would keep a marker from the previous Saturday, and they would hand them the scroll, and that's the spot they would begin to read from. It's still done, by the way, in Jewish synagogues like this today. And so he, they would teach through scripture. Now, as Jesus is sitting there in Nazareth, it's his turn to teach. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. They didn't have Uh, chapters and verses like we have, but the spot that they were in that particular Saturday was Isaiah 61, and here's what Jesus stood up and read. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." That's what Jesus said. And then he rolled up the scroll and he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled. And then he sat down. You can imagine the buzz that was created in the room. 
Now we hear that and it sounds awesome, right? We get really excited about what Jesus said. But to the Jewish people, they would immediately have their hearts on fire within their chests because he didn't read the rest of the verse. He stopped at a comma. And at the comma that he stopped at, after that it says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. So, Verse 2 says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. What the Jewish people were really excited about was this whole God taking vengeance upon their enemies piece. They really liked that part. They were excited about him taking their enemies and making them his footstool. I mean, who doesn't want Jesus to make our enemies our footstool, right? And so as John is hearing this and he's thinking about these things, he does not understand why Jesus wouldn't just come to rule and reign. Except at his first coming, his whole plan was redemption, right? Even for himself, he's looking to actually bring people into the kingdom of heaven, not merely to just judge. Is he going to judge? Yes, he is absolutely. He is going to fulfill the rest of that verse, From the comma on, there is going to be a day of vengeance. His wrath is going to be poured out. And yet for people, he wants them so badly to be saved that that Ezekiel tells us he takes no joy in the destruction of the wicked. Even the most wicked, he doesn't get excited about that. And so he wants people to have an opportunity to come to them. And yet for John, he's stuck in this spot where he's been limited. He is left there in a cave by himself, and he's wondering why has Jesus left me here? He is essentially offended. He's offended because Jesus wasn't doing things the way he expected him to do them. Have you ever been in that spot where Jesus doesn't do things the way you expect him to? And what happens? Immediately when we have expectations and we lay them on people in our families, we lay them even upon our God, and we say, boy, I expect you to do it this way, What happens is it's greatly offensive to us. It's hurtful, and we cannot understand, but we can't understand because we can't see the big picture. And the reality is for Jesus, who would lay down his life in just a few chapters, by the way, he is always out to get the most good for the most people. It's not always for my comfort, unfortunately. It's for his glory and for the most good. And so, continuing on in verse 7, as the disciples of John the Baptist then departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." And so as Jesus sends the disciples of John away, no doubt the crowd is now murmuring, right? They, they're talking a little bit about John the Baptist. See, we knew. We knew we were all about Jesus. John had it all wrong. 
You'd see him walking away. But Jesus wants to set this crowd straight very quickly. Look, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? John was no fragile flower, right? He, he's in prison right now, but he was no pansy. He was a tough guy. He wasn't clothed in the finest of clothing. He was in camel fur, which, by the way, throughout history, you know what's never been in style? Camel fur. Never been in, right? Bell bottoms, yes. Tight rolled jeans from time to time. Even skinny jeans and those little black boots in style. Never camel fur. This is John. He's out there. He, he's on the edge. And, and Jesus wants to make it clear. He was not just any prophet. He was a great man. But then he goes on to say something interesting. He says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is going to be greater than John the Baptist. That had to make you scratch your head, right? He's saying that for all those men born of women, John's the greatest, but the greatest in the kingdom is going to be even greater than him. So what gives? What's he talking about? Well, in John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus does something very interesting with his disciples. So Jesus said to them, or excuse me, in verse 22, and we had, when he had said this, what he says in verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is post-resurrection. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the first time where people had actually had the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit within them. Now, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see all kinds of places where the Holy Spirit comes upon the great men of the Bible, but never within. And do you understand, this is the same thing that's offered for you and I today. That with the simple welcoming in and admission of our of our sins, and Father, I want you to please come live within me, that you invite the Holy Spirit to live within us, and this is an experience that even for John the Baptist, he didn't have. Well, we don't have to, to walk around wondering what God would have us do, but because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, he actually shows us what to do, and what's even better about this, even more exciting, is that this is now uh, what gospel tells us is a surety. It's a down payment for us to go to heaven. This is the guarantee that he's going to come back for us if we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. And what Paul says in Ephesians is this makes us the, the heirs of the inheritance of the riches of heaven. Can you imagine that? Like just simply welcoming him into your life, it makes you a part of the inheritance of heaven. And so as we go and as we have worries and trials and all these things that come up in the life of a believer, that the truth about all this is, is that if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've accepted him, as bad as this life can be, the absolute worst that can be thrown at us, this is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. Think about that. This is as close to hell as it's ever going to get for you as a believer. But then if you flip the script, for those that do not believe in Jesus, and friends, this is why it's so important to invite people to come to experience the gospel, because for those that do not believe, this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. That this life, as good as you can live it, I mean, you can live it all in, I mean, look, for, for those that don't believe in Jesus, I would, I would say, um, they really ought to go all out. 
right? They ought to get the big house, all the cars. I mean, if it's me and I don't believe in Jesus and this is as close to heaven as I'm going to get, I'm going Motley Crew on it. I mean, I'm going girls, girls, girls. You better look out. I got the big truck, the big house. I'm going to let it rip, y'all. Right? That's the way it's going to be for me. But, but even then, even as good as we can live it up, even for Vince and for Tommy, the best they could do, this is all the heaven they're ever going to get. i got to tell you, friends, if this is heaven, it's one hell of a heaven. Right? So then continuing on in verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. That's a weird verse. Wouldn't you agree? Like, what in the world does that mean? There's a reason I pulled this off to the side, though. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. It seems very odd the way it's written. But when you look at John's life and for Jesus, like their ministries were ones that created a ton of violent reaction, right? Like people got very upset by what they had to say. It caused much violence, and yet I don't think that's what Jesus was trying to communicate. There's something lost here in the translation. And so looking back at the Greek, I know you guys love it when I pull out words in the Greek. Remember your New Testament wasn't written in English. Even though we think Jesus, if you grew up Baptist like me, we're pretty sure that Jesus spoke in the King James. Turns out he didn't. It was in Greek. And so the Greek word here is actually uh, biastes. It's translated violence, but what it actually means is eager pursuit, or in the Brock Ashley version, it's to get all fired up. So now reread this, and what you see is, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of, of heaven suffers for those who are fired up or excited about it, and those who are excited or eager take it by force. For those that for the first time actually get a taste of what the Word of God is and what it sounds like to be taught, it, it should create a fire in your soul. It should be something that you get so excited you cannot wait to hear what the next thing is that He has for you. At least for me, uh, when I first heard the Word of God actually taught and it began to sink in, I had to listen to the next message. And it was almost like a desperate man, like, like in the desert looking for water because I had gone for 35 years not really understanding what the Word of God said. And I couldn't wait another day. Yeah, I had to hear more and more and more. And for people that finally get on fire for Jesus for the first time ever, what you realize is that Christianity is not to be taken passively. You cannot just sit back and just let it happen. Just take it all in. That it should create some kind of an emotional reaction for us. We're not meant to just sit here and blindly stare off in the distance or not come at all. Like the reality is, for a Christian, it should not be a passive relationship. It's an active one. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate when he says the violent, the eager, the fired up are those that are actually going to take the kingdom of heaven as if by force. All right, that was awkward. Let's continue on, verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, 
let him hear. And so Jesus goes on to tell them, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. Now, this would have told the Jewish believers that might have remembered their Old Testament that in Malachi chapter 4, it was prophesied that Elijah would come and be the one to pave the way for the Messiah. And so this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to them, that he is, if you can accept it, Elijah who is to come. Now, was he physically the physical manifestation of Elijah? No, he was not. That we'll actually see in Revelation 11, before the second coming of Christ. Before the first coming of Christ, in spirit, this is what John the Baptist represents. He was Elijah who was to pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. And what we learn of him in John chapter 10 about John the Baptist, verse 41, is that he did no miracle. So unlike Elijah, who performed all kinds of awesome miracles, John the Baptist actually did none. But what we're told of him is that every word he spoke about Jesus was true. That's some kind of testimony for John the Baptist. The other awesome thing about him that he got to say that no other prophet in the Old Testament got to say They all prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, that that the Messiah is going to come, he's going to come, and John the Baptist got to say, he's here. (laughs) He's here, he's right here with you right now. And so this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. For those who had ears, they were to receive this word. And then in verse 16, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. That's what they do for a wedding. We mourn for you and you did not lament. That's how they would react at a funeral. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. And so as Jesus has gone through this and he said, look, what are you looking for? You've got these two different examples. You've got John the Baptist, who from his birth, this miraculous birth, his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, were told he should be a Nazarite from birth. The Nazarite vow meant he would never cut his hair. He would never touch grapes or drink any wine. And then he has this weird dress that I talked about before. He's in camel fur. He's eating locusts and honey. I mean, the reality is John was weird. Like He was was a legalistic, weird guy. And for the people that followed him, they went out to the wilderness and they said, boy, he's just strange. He must have a demon or something. And then along comes Jesus, who is not any of these things that John the Baptist was. Right? He, he interacted with people and, and probably was gregarious and, and, and very influential. He ate and he drank with sinners. He, he would sit and have dinner with them. They called him a glutton. And so Jesus' point is, you didn't like it when the funeral song played. You didn't like it when the wedding song played. What is it you like? And the reality is they didn't, they didn't want any of it because it didn't line up with their own selfish desires. So regardless of what they said, Regardless, in reality, regardless of what any preacher says, the truth is in what the fruit looks like. The fruit ultimately tells the story of what's happening with the root. I actually meant to rhyme there, in case you're wondering. The root and the fruit. See, there you go. That's that way you can remember it. You can take that home for free. But what Jesus, we're told about him as he 
thought about these things, and people would come to him and say all kinds of, of, of things, some positive and some negative. And in John chapter 2, verse 23, we're told that now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, of man for he knew what was in man. And so all kinds of people will come to Jesus and have all sorts of things to tell them about themselves or other people, and he didn't listen to any of it because he knew what was in man. And what he's teaching here is, what he's trying to communicate is, if you really want to know what someone's all about, check out the fruit in their life. We're not called to judge, right? Judge not lest ye be judged. But we are called, as Christians, to be fruit inspectors. What does the fruit look like? Is it good fruit? Is it bad fruit? The fruit tells you about the tree, ultimately. And so where I wanted to go with this, and what I think Jesus is also trying to communicate is that if the, if the wisdom, Jesus is wisdom personified, if wisdom is justified by her children, then he is actually justified by how we carry things out in our lives. That lots of times, in many cases and occasions, the only Jesus that other people are going to see is what they see in you and I. Which, by the way, is terrifying oftentimes. <laughs> we think about how I act uh, at work at times or how I might act here at church. I can usually hold it together in all those cases. You know, the hardest one is when uh, the doors close over there on Carriage Lane. How do you act around the people you spend the most time with? Because the Jesus they see in you oftentimes might be the only Jesus they ever get. And so, this is what he's trying to explain. And, and, and the question is, as a child of God, do I justify him? Now before we're too hard on ourselves, remember that for children of God, he's hoping we'll eventually become grown-ups in God. And so as we stumble and as we fall and as we don't quite get it all right, understand it's a process. And so as we grow up into adults in Christ and we come to maturity in Jesus, it's going to take time. But it doesn't mean we get to give up. Now then, continuing in verse 20. And then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in you that had been done in, excuse me, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment for, than for you. And for Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would, be, it would remain until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And so here's Jesus, and he's, he's going on this ministry circuit. He basically had a triangle that he would go through in the Galilee region. He would go from Capernaum, his headquarters, up to Bethsaida, and over to Chorazin, and then back. And he would go healing and preaching and teaching in all these areas, and what he's trying to communicate here is that with great light comes great responsibility. 
Superman didn't coin that phrase. Sorry uh, uh, for you comic book fans. But with great light comes great responsibility. And so for, for Capernaum, which was his ministry headquarters, think about this. They received more light than any other people group throughout history after Genesis chapter 3. So after God walked in, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, from that point forward, no other people group had had this much light given to them. And yet they did not repent. And so what does Jesus say? It's going to be uh, hard for you. And in fact, if you go to Capernaum to, today, uh, this picture was taken a few years ago when I was in Israel. That's what Capernaum looks like on the screen. The trees were planted uh, thanks to the Catholic Church, who anytime something is mentioned about Jesus, they put a church there. But praise the Lord for the Catholic Church keeping things looking nice. They, they planted the trees. Other than that, everything's obliterated. It's, it's foundations and stone. There is nothing. No life inhabits that place. For Tyre and Sidon would have actually called some, some recollection to their minds. Is, is, it's this area located just to the north of Israel. Tyre and Sidon were completely obliterated by Alexander the Great around 300 B.C. And so as Jesus is telling them, look, it's going to be easier for them than what it is going to be for you. They would have been immediately called back to destruction. The same thing is true for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We, we know that Bible story from Genesis 19 that it was utterly wiped out because of their immorality. And yet what Jesus is communicating is because of the light that they did not repent to, it's going to be easier for them. Which tells us, and this is not always the easiest for, for us to understand and comprehend, but both reward and punishment seem to be based on the amount of light received. Now, is sin sin? Absolutely. The wages of sin is death? Yes. If you're a sinner, you've got the same death sentence as all the other sinners. And guess what? All you sinners can raise your hands? No, not really. But we're all sinners, right? So, so the issue is the same. But what Jesus is communicating is that for those who receive a bunch of light, and here in this land that we live, we get a bunch of light. Right? There, there, you can hardly find someone that hasn't heard the name of Jesus or heard about the Bible. And, and for those, the punishment is going to be stricter for ignoring him. Think about that. These cities he's talking about, they did not stone him. They did not crucify him. Their charge was they ignored him. They were apathetic to the message. And so when you take that all into account with what I'm trying to communicate and not be a Debbie Downer this morning, is that what you ultimately have with, with the nation we're in, with the spot we're in, with the status of the church that we're at, um, we're Laodicea. We are the Laodiceans. And, and what in the world do I mean by that? Revelation chapter 3, Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea. And in verse 14 he says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write this. These things says the Amen. He's speaking of himself, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I vomit you out of my mouth. <laughs> That's what Jesus has to say about being lukewarm, being apathetic, being unwilling to even 
acknowledge the message, being just okay with what's happening all around us. His desire for us is to be hot or cold. Either be all in or all out. Just pick one. Stop sitting around passively while the world just goes by. Now, we are going to end on a better note than that. Picking up with me, if you would, in verse uh, 25. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, look, it's time to pray. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. And even so, uh, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who, are la- all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus begins by saying to them that God didn't choose to reveal himself to the wise or to the prudent. So if you wonder why I'm not that wise or that prudent, it's because Jesus didn't reveal himself to the wise and the prudent. So you're stuck with me, sorry. But he chose to reveal himself instead to Babes to children is ultimately what he's saying. And so I'll flip to the right just a little bit to Matthew 18. He says, at that time, in verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, and he set him in the midst of them, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. For therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Our faith needs to look like the faith of a child is what he's saying. And if you have witnessed the faith of a child, let me tell you, it is humbling. Right? They are willing to accept the scripture. Get this. They're willing to accept scripture at face value. Isn't that hard to believe? They read it and they believe it because they're told this is God's word and they accept it. And they're willing to be humble and come to, come to it with that kind of a heart. And so here, this is what Jesus is saying. He's come to those who are willing to humble themselves, to be babes, to say, look, I don't know everything, but I'm going to accept this at face value. And then he goes on to essentially say, I am the author. That's what Hebrews tells us. He is the initiator, and he is what he just mentions here, the very giver of salvation. That's what he's saying in verses 27, 26 and 27. So the question always comes up in church, right? Did he choose me or did I choose him? Which one is it? Is it, is it his sovereign election? Is it my free will? And so we take a very hard line and say, yes. That's our answer. Did I choose him? Did he choose me? Yep, sure did. The reality of it is, that's how it works. He chose you, and he knew that you were going to choose him. And so why would he choose you if you weren't going to choose him? He's God, in fact. If he didn't know what you were going to do, then it would make him not a very understanding and all-knowing God. 
And so he chose you, and so then how do you know if you're chosen? Maybe that's a better question. How do I know if I'm chosen? Well, what this next verse, verse 28 says, is come to me. If you want to know that you're chosen, come. What Revelation 22, I'll go back there really quickly. I didn't mark it. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water freely. And so if you want to know if you've been chosen or not, I'd encourage you to come. And what you'll find is that to him who desires to take of the water freely, you've been chosen. Congratulations. All we need to do is come to him. And yet it's so hard for us because of our own selfish desires and, and, and wants. And yet he's, he's encouraging us to just come. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, look, I want you to be yoked to me. If, you're la- if you labor and you're heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now a yoke, I used to think as a kid, was a Y-O-L-K, an egg yoke. What in the world is Jesus talking about? But a yoke is actually a wood beam. I put a picture of it up here so you'd understand it. It's a wood beam that was laid across the, the necks of two oxen. And so once they are yoked together, they now operate as one uh, continual piece of equipment. They are like one. They are yoked together. Now what they would do in uh, this day is they would actually take a stronger, older, more experienced oxen and they would yoke them to a younger weaker oxen and use it as a way to train them and so in the course of time the stronger oxen is doing the majority of the work but the weaker oxen is actually able to grow in their uh, in their work until they are able to function equally and so here's what Jesus is saying pay attention to this piece please I want you to take my yoke I want to be yoked to you He is the the strong one, the one that we can depend upon. And then as we walk through this life, as we're yoked together with him, he's doing most of the work. Lots of times as he's doing most of the work, we get this feeling like walking on sunshine. Look at me go, right? We're the little oxen that's not really doing anything. It's like my boys helping me move furniture, right? Grab a hold of it. You've got the heavy end. And the reality is they're barely carrying anything. Boy, this is light, Dad. Yeah, no kidding. Because I've got the entire dresser. But, but they want to help. And this is us being yoked to Jesus. This is what he's trying to communicate. But the promise here isn't no yoke, and it's not no work. And lots of times we want to go, I'm just going to give it all to Jesus. He's not going to make me do a thing. That's not at all what he says. But the promise is my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Right? In this life, we are going to have to do things. And what I also love about this is he's promising rest. How many of you are looking for some rest, right? We could, man, I could use some rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The rest that so often we want and we desire is, Lord, take my thing away from me. Take my deal, whatever yours is coming in here today. Lord, just take that away. And then I'll finally be able to sleep and rest. And what he's saying is, I want to provide rest for your soul. 
If you know anything at all about rest, and I'm guessing everybody in here does, you know that physical rest is always temporary. Physical rest, it, there's never enough of it. There's never enough hours involved. It, it, it's always temporary. And, and even when we so desire rest from, from physical activity, this week I played basketball for the first time in five years. I played organized basketball with other grown men, right? And the, I started off like, like that young oxen. Man, I'm, I'm ready to go. I scored the first basket of the game. I'm the only guy there over 40. And I'm like, this is how it's done, young bucks. Check it out. Doing a little walk. I spent the next 20 minutes trying to breathe. I could not. I knew I needed to breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth. And instead, it was just... I could not function. I was awful the whole rest of the game. And I was tired that night. And yet, the reality of it was the next day... I got up. Was I sore? Yes. I'm sitting here on Sunday. That was Tuesday. I feel a little better. I can walk again. But, but that physical rest, it was only temporary. The physical pain was only temporary. What Jesus is talking about is rest for your soul. The call here by him is to actually be able to work. And, and, and I hope you can grasp this. He wants us to be able to work from a place of rest. That so often we want to work really hard so we can earn rest. That's not at all what Jesus is selling. What he's saying is, I want you to rest and then be able to work out of that spot. And when we flip it around and we try to work and we bust our tail so we can earn some rest, and I'm going to do anything I can to work, to get that week, to go down to hillbilly heaven down there in Destin, and I'm going to just hang out on the beach. What do you always come away with? Boy, I could have used another day. Boy, I could have used another week of that. Boy, it wasn't just enough rest. It's never satisfying. Because the reality is, physical rest is always second best. And are we willing to try to go to Jesus and ask Him for something that is second best when what He's actually saying is, look, I want you to be able to work from a place of rest. I want you to be able to rest in the knowledge that I've got your very soul. That no matter what the world throws at you, no matter how tired you might get, no matter how you know, awful you might think this thing is, that you are fully secured as a child of God. And that when you fully buy into that, there's nothing this place can throw at you. That is rest for a soul. And then when we go to work, and we have opportunities to go and do things. And yeah, we do stuff for Jesus. It's awesome. But I want to encourage you to do that from a place of rest. Where your soul can actually abide in him. Because his promise here is my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Father, thank you for that promise. There is a whole room full including the guy praying right now of people that agree that rest sounds pretty awesome right now. And Father, what I want to pray about is that you would make it clear to us that your rest is for the soul and that you have always got our best in mind. Father, thank you that we don't have to toil and worry about all the things that the world wants to convince us that we have to worry about, be it sickness, be it death, be it pandemics, 
be it be a tragedy that all these things are temporary and you have taken care of the eternal. And so, Father, I thank you for that. There is rest in that. So, Lord, as we come to you getting ready to take communion, please help us to be able to reflect upon that, that as we commune, as we take part in what you did for us, this free gift of salvation, Lord, we're thankful for that, and we praise you for the rest that's involved in it. In Jesus' name, amen. While Jake and Michaela play this song, I want to encourage you to come up and uh, take a cup of communion. The bread and the, uh, the juice are all there together. Um, it is hard to open, so don't get frustrated. Don't be the cussing Christian because it didn't open right. So, so just take your time, open the bread. We'll take the elements uh, together after they're done with the song. Seems like all I could see was struggle Haunted by ghosts that lived in my past Bound up shackles of all of my failures Then you look at this prisoner and say to me, son, stop fighting a fight that's already been won. I am redeemed. You said. So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain. I'm not who I used to be. I am redeemed. All my life I have been called unworthy. shame and regret But when I hear you whisper, child lift up your head I remember oh God you're not done with me yet I am redeemed You said So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain. I'm not who I used to be, because I don't have to be the old man inside of me. Cause his day is long dead and gone, because 
I've got a new name, a new life, not the same, a hope that will carry me home. I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain. I'm not who I used to be. I am redeemed. So for the Apostle Paul, as he was addressing the church there in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we come to you and we give thanks for your body, which you willingly broke on our behalf, which you didn't lay down by force or compulsion, but you did so willingly. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying this is the cup this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and so father we now take the cup and we praise you for your blood in which you spilled out on our behalf it's hard to even fathom um, that kind of love and that kind of affection. Um, but that's how much you care for us. And so we thank you and we praise you and we proclaim your name until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we sing one final song? presence of my enemies I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief I raise a hallelujah my weapon is melody I raise a hallelujah Heaven comes to fight for me. I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're gonna hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated, the king is. 
the hallelujah from everything inside of me. I raise a hallelujah and I watch the darkness flee. I raise a hallelujah in the middle of the mystery. I raise a hallelujah Fear you lost your hold on me Oh, I'm gonna sing In the middle of the storm Louder and louder Gonna hear my praises roar Up from the ashes Hope will arise Death is defeated And the church says, Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, <laughs> thank you guys so much for joining today. Uh, if any of you would like prayer, I'll be hanging around up front. Be happy to pray with you. Don't forget tonight, 430, we'll have the doors open so you guys can come on in. If you didn't make anything, don't worry about that. We'll have plenty of food and enjoy uh, the time hanging out together. God bless you guys.